So tonight we're going to start in Hosea chapter 14, and then we'll get quickly into Joel. Last week, you know, the book of Hosea, and I said this last week, and I'll say, I'll say it again. Uh, I have it written in my Bible, and I, I believe it is true, especially in this 14th chapter of Hosea, is among the most beautiful in the Bible describing God's love for his people. You know, we hear so much about judgment, about judgment, about judgment, and we parallel that. God, God does not, he uses judgment as a last recourse. God is a God of mercy, he's a God of love, and you know, uh, he uses judgment. He pleads to stay away from judgment. He pleads for repentance. And yet, uh, when all is, is futile in the eyes of sinful men, God sends judgment. And what I love about God as far as Israel, we will see as we go through these minor prophets, especially when we get in the book of Zechariah, we'll see how he does it in love. He chastises in love. And he will be severe if he must be severe. And that is, uh, that's a concept today that a lot of people and a lot of this church that we see in, in this country and now in the world, um, they don't want to deal with a God of judgment. Because after all, God is supposed to be a God of love. Well, the Bible says even a good parent should be a parent of love, but he must be a parent of discipline. He who spares the rod loves his child? No, he who spares the rod hates his child. You know, and we're, and again, these concepts come from a loving God, but we see that most severely in these minor prophets dealing with Israel and up to the last days. I was talking to a, a, a man a couple years ago. We were, we were talking about the 70th week of Daniel and how he felt that was going to pan out and how that was going to go. And, uh, one thing he was absolutely surprised about is God's allowing wickedness to reach its peak. Well, today this modern church wants a leave it to beaver society. They don't want the, uh, the severity of God to allow this world to go so far. But I believe that Donald Barnhouse had the answer there. He's going to show creation without a shadow of a doubt that he is holy and without him sin will reign. Men have sinful hearts, and without him, there will be absolute chaos. And I believe that's one of the reasons why, have you ever thought about in, in the, the millennium, think about this, a thousand years of the reign of the king of kings on the throne of, of his father David that has been prophesied, he is reigning. There's going to be people born into that kingdom, okay, that are, that are of a, a natural descent. So he is a judge, and when things, if things will go awry, he's going to correct it in an instant. Righteousness is going to be the, the atonement of, or the reigning influence of society and government. And all of a sudden, at the end of this thousand years, God lets out the father of lies. And he comes out, and he, he goes around, and he deceives all the nations of the world. Can God stop that? Absolutely. Was not God in control when Sodom and Gomorrah were going haywire? Yes. Was God not in control when Satan fell from heaven in pride? Yes. And God's in control there as well. He allows this to happen. The whole created universe, through all eons of time, will see, beyond a shadow of a doubt, 
that our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely holy and righteous and just. And anything that he judges, he's judged in that righteousness and holiness. Our God is wonderful. Wow. O Israel, chapter 14, Hosea, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. Wow. God is seeking true repentance. Heartfelt repentance. Jesus cried out that they seek me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is what God is crying out. He desires true repentance before this, the coming judgment is coming. He's pleading with this. You know, we've spent a lot of time in Hosea, a lot longer than I thought we would. Back in chapter 8, he's telling Hosea to set the trumpet to your mouth. Because he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because I've transgressed my covenant. They've rebelled against my law. And Israel, what does it cry? Israel, verse 2 of chapter 8 says, Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. But Israel has rejected the good and the enemy who will pursue him. It's, it's a heartfelt repentance that God is after. This reaches its peak, by the way. When we get into Zechariah, we're going to see that the nations of the world that are against Christ, will come together to gather together for the battle of Armageddon. And you talk about the hot white heat of judgment and hot white heat of impending doom. These people cry out finally in heart repentance. They have been, they have been a repentant remnant of the people of Israel. And when Christ comes back, they have already have, have their, the remnant that God has chosen out, and when they see him come back, then they will realize that heartfelt repentance. And that's what God's asking for, from even from, from us or from those that come to Christ. And we'll get into that a little bit later about his church. Repentance. He says, there's no Savior besides me in chapter 13. So we get to this last chapter, and God is feverishly speaking through Hosea. You need to return to me, O Israel. You stumbled because of your iniquity. Take these words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer sacrifices with our lips. Now that, what we're talking about here in context is not the sacrifice of our lips and the heart being far from us. We can actually go in the New Testament connotation of that in where we're at in Hebrews. That the believer offers the sacrifice, the fruit of his lips from a, a renewed heart, a renewed heart that's been with repentance, that has come to Christ and in a contrite spirit said, oh Lord my God, I have sinned against you. I need you. I'm going to turn to the Savior in repentance. 
That's what God's after. He is pleading, pleading. Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. It's not what Christ has done to us. He's not atoned for some of our iniquity. He's atoned for all of it. And he asks one thing, that we would come to him in belief, that we would believe in the words that he said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one. Turn to me and be ye saved. That's the only way. Look at verse 3. Again, a cereal shall not save us. When we've known, when we've been going through Hosea, they turned to Assyria. They've tried to make alignment with Assyria. In fact, they were sending uh, gifts, if you will, to the king of Assyria. Way back in Deuteronomy, I believe, don't quote me on that, they prohibited the, the building up of, of horses, the building up of, because God was their defense. And that's what they were doing. And God says, here's what I require of you. You tell Assyria that you, you were getting alignment with, they were, they're not going to save you. You're not going to ride on multiple horses and, 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 embar- and, and count on and barter with their military might. Look at the belly, verse 3. Nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. You're going to stop those idols. That's what repentance is. Repentance is all or nothing. It's a saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's not, well, I'll repent a little bit. I know I've been you know, bad here. And yet, keep your reserves here. And a lot of times, God will bring a man to the end of himself, just like he's bringing Israel to the end of themselves. They're stumbling. They're about ready to fall. You know, the proverb says that we are to save those that are stumbling to the slaughter. And if we say we didn't know, God knows our hearts. You know? God knows the hearts of these people. And he's crying out, I don't want you to trust in anybody but me. You're not going to have military campaigns or trust in any of the forces to save you but me. And by the way, the work of your hands, the idols that you have dabbled with, you're going to get rid of those. You know, we can go all through the Word of God. We go all through Genesis. Even Joshua said the same thing in the end of Joshua's life. When, when God was severely dealing with them and they wouldn't go in and take their allotment, the power of the Lord was in Joshua, and his powerful word says, As for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. And he started telling them out, out of his heart, God was pouring out, that he's the Lord. And they said, we're going to serve him. You know, we're going to heed your words. We're going to serve him. And he said, you can't do that. We've talked about this before. You cannot do that unless God is it. And you put away everything else. That's exactly what God is saying here. And he says, you're not going to say anymore about the works of these hands, that there are gods. For in you, the fatherless finds mercy. See, God's judgment will be always the last case, last step that he does, because his mercy is always abounding. Look at how many times, two times in verse 4, One time in verse 5, God says, I will. I love that. That's God. I believe believe that is God's, one of God's most gracious sayings. I will. You go to the book of Colossians and see we're in him, in him, in him, with him, in him, 
God is always the initiator of peace. I don't have to make peace with God. God already made peace. I, I receive the peace and I enter into it. How can I make peace with my creator? I can't do enough to make peace with him. He's holy and perfect. I have a problem. These people had a problem. We all have a problem outside of Christ. There is nothing we can do to make peace with God. We've offended it. We've broken his law. We've sinned without measure. He is always the one that makes peace. He made peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. I will kill their backsliding. You want to know what true repentance does? This is what it does. Not only when a man comes to Je or a woman comes to Jesus Christ and is born again, but to, to one who has, has, uh, has lived, you know, uh, as if sometimes you, you forgot, you know, that he was a Christian, so to speak. I've known a lot of people that you think, wow, were you ever cognizant of the day that you received Christ? Backsliding. What is backsliding in the Word of God? It's turning away to your own doings. It's not turning away from God a lot of times, but when you backslide, instead of going forward with Christ, sometimes you turn away from the Word and you start doing your own things and you get caught in things that don't please the Lord. You become defiled. Do you lose your salvation? No. You don't. But you grieve the Spirit. You grieve the Lord. So what does repentance mean? You turn from what is grievous to God to Christ. You confess your sins. He washes you with the water of the word. But look what it does, and look what he promised he will do to Israel. If they truly followed the first three verses here and did the repentance he required from the heart, he says, I will heal, verse 4, you're backsliding. I will love them freely. Wow. I don't know about you, but I've been loved freely in Jesus Christ, and I'm still learning about that. Do we ever get satisfied? Do we ever can say, yeah, God loves me, and it's, you know, it used to be a wonderment to me, but, you know, after so many years, I just kind of take that. No, it is always a wonderment. God loves you freely because Christ took the initiative and made peace on the cross for me. For my anger, last part of verse 4, has turned away from him. Wow. My anger has turned away from him. Judgment fell on Christ. God struck Christ instead of me and you. I will be like the dew, verse 5, to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. Interesting analogy. His fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? 
Paul says, why are you doing the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things are past. That's what repentance does. What do I have to do with idols, verse 8? I have heard and observed him. I'm like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. Now, let me read the end of this, and we'll get back. This is so rich. Verse 9, who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. You remember when Job, well, I think we all know the outcome of Job, how God had given him twice of everything, save his children. But, but what does Job say? After the discourse of God showing Job himself, Job says an amazing thing. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. And what does it do? Therefore I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. That's what the gospel does. That's what God does. You can hear about him all day long. This country is saturated with the gospel, but once the eye of faith, once God opens our eyes and we see a glimpse of him, we don't think highly of ourselves anymore. We think of ourselves as he did. I am a sinner. I have a problem. And of course, the Bible shouts Jesus saying, I, I'm the answer. He's going to heal their backsliding. He's going to love them freely. Verse 5 again. He's going to be like the dude to Israel. Refreshing. It's almost like a, a night of heavy dew on a scorched earth. It just refreshes. It causes growth. It waters. They're going to grow. Their roots are going to be like Lebanon. They're going to grow like lilies. Their branches are going to spread out. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. His beauty. You know how many times that God causes, calls Israel his glory? The apple of his eye, his beauty, his friend, his servant, his intimate confidant. I mean, it is amazing how many times God equates this. And yet, to those that know him in true repentance, they have a knowledge of him that most people never will. Because that's what God really seeks for. Are you going to believe my word? Are you going to believe what, you, what I say about you, that you need a Savior? Look at verse 8 again. Ebel, uh, excuse me, Ephraim shall say, what do I have any more to do with idols? Again, just like Job, I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. And I looked at about 20 different translations or 20 different Bibles in and uh, they all have this in there, uh, which most of the people that have put the, the references in there did a good job, you know, John 15, 4. Jesus simply says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. Israel, as us, must come to the Lord in wholehearted repentance. 
in order to be restored and saved. God will have nothing to do with half-hearted repentance. But I can guarantee you the word of God, and I've experienced in my own life, that when a man comes to repentance in Jesus Christ, God humbles him. He lifts up the humble. He abases the proud. No. Your fruit is found in me. Israel, you're my vine. Carefully planted. Jesus, the master, uh, says it this way, remember? That I, about his fruitful vineyard that he dug. He did everything meticulously. And he waited for the produce. What kind of produce came out of it? Wasted grapes, rotten grapes, moldy grapes, grapes that weren't good for anything. And then he says an amazing thing. He says, what more could I have done for my vineyard? <coughs> Repent. Because your fruit, anything in life that is worth life itself comes from God. I was talking to my son last night. He said, you can do whatever you want in life, and good for you. We've always said we want you to do what is moral, what is right, and, and far as life. Good for you. But don't ever leave out the fact that all of your goodness of life that's going to carry on eternity comes from Jesus Christ. Without him, you have no life. Don't sit there and spin your wheels and go through life and then realize at the end, wow, I missed the boat. I missed it. And that's what he's pleading with, with Israel right here. Your fruit is going to be from me. Then he, then he ends in this wonderful book, verse 9. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Paul says in Corinthians that the wisdom of this world is foolishness in the eyes of God. If you're going to be wise, you become a fool in the eyes of this world and believe the gospel. People look at the gospel in all different ways. The true gospel is an offense to this world. It is precious in the eyes of God. And it should be precious to us as well. That's why we love one another. So who is wise, let them understand these things. Who's prudent? Prudent. Wow. Exercising sound judgment in practical matters. That's the way Webster says what prudent is. Exercising sound judgment in practical matters. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them. But transgressors stumble because they don't know where they're going, the Bible says. The way of transgressors is hard, the Proverbs say. There's no light. In fact, most of the unrighteous people don't know what they stumble, but they go all their life stumbling. They don't know why. Why is life so hard? Why is finally they get to the point they say, well, what is the answer to life then? What am I, am I just going to stumble through life and die? You know, after we've talked about this, going through this wonderful book, about the fact that Israel must come to the Lord in wholehearted repentance in order to be restored. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17, a wonderful verse. 
If you, if, if you can understand the concept of what he's doing here, he had just passed a very religious atmosphere, place, and he sees this, this uh, what would you call it, um, statue or whatever, to, uh, to the unknown God. All kinds of philosophy, all kinds of religions, all kinds of different things. In fact, they, they heard the resurrection of Christ, and some of them thought, hey, this guy is, this is babbler saying to us. But listen to this in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. And I'll end with this verse as we end Hosea. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked or passed over. You know? The King James says winked at, but you got to understand what kind of language they were using at that time. It's not like God is winking at us. That's no big deal. That's not the concept here. God, he saw the times of ignorance of these people. He overlooked or he passed over. But now... He commands all men everywhere to repent. There is a huge movement today that said people don't need repentance. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And that's simply when you hear the gospel... Jesus said that the Spirit will convict of sin. We're convicted of our sin, and we turn from our sin to the Savior. Does that mean we, we, everything's gone right away? We, we stop all bad habits? No. But we turn to the Savior, and we are born again, and He starts a work in our life, molding us and fashioning us to the image of Christ. Because we have a secure, eternal position the moment we come to Christ. That is the teaching of the New Testament. When I come to Jesus Christ and I'm born again, I have that eternal standing with God in the heavens. We can read that in Ephesians and elsewhere. We have that standing. But God is down here fashioning me through the Holy Spirit and, and working in me that, that image of Christ. Absolutely wonderful. Now the Calvinists would say, well... No, no, that's, that's not quite the way it should be because you were elected from uh, eternity past. And, uh, you know, and if some of you don't understand their doctrine of that, the one thing they leave out is foreknowledge. 1 Peter chapter 1. Election is always with foreknowledge. See, God... In his foreknowledge, which we can't understand, God chooses, which we rejoice at, but we don't understand. We let God be God. But we also understand that the Bible speaks of a will, a freedom of the will to choose. You can't get around this. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I've put before you life and death. Choose life. God grieves the death of the wicked. Whereas Barnhouse used to say, and I love it, that, that Christ is going to weep as you stumble over his cross into Christless eternity. I love that. He wishes none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Wait a minute, does that mean that he wishes all to come to repentance, but he knew that this guy never would? So, you know, the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ doesn't apply to him. We don't understand God's foreknowledge and God's choosing, but God is perfect. We do understand that. And if God says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, and hundreds and hundreds of other scriptures, we must allow God to be God, but we know that he's just and he's fair. And he gives us the free will to come to him and love him freely. 
Was God not in control? When Satan through the serpent tempted Eve, he was in complete control. And yet, when we choose to sin because we are sinners, God still in mercy provided the lamb. So, what's going to be the plight of Israel? We know the plight of Israel. A remnant will be saved. Or as Paul says, so all Israel, all spiritual Israel will be saved. Wow. You know, it's... I know there's a lot of times when people don't understand the reason why God does the way they do. God never understand, says, I need you to understand me completely. You never will. But we can take his word at his word. I became a Christian. I didn't deserve it. I did not deserve it. There was nothing in me. In fact, the Bible calls sin death. The Bible calls the fact that we were separated from Christ, we're separated from him because of sin. We were dead in sin. See, and, and the Calvinists will say, well, wait a minute, a dead man can't hear. You're dead. God's got to cause you to be born again and, and, and cause you to believe. No, that is not the teaching of Scripture. And I know that I'm stepping on some toes here, probably for people listening, I don't know. It's, but God loved me so much that he sent Christ to die for me. Remember, Christ's sacrifice was before the that was from eons past. Before God ever created man, ever created the world, the sacrifice of Christ was his doing, was his plan, his predetermined plan. By the foreknowledge of God, you crucified him by wicked hands. It was predetermined before I was even born. Christ came in the world at just the right time, Paul says in, in, in Colossians, or excuse me, in Galatians. I have been a recipient of grace. I've been a recipient of mercy because he loved me. I could have shunned that off, but he gave me the choice. I, like many of you, have seen many people shun the gospel. And I've known many people, even in my own family, that have shunned the gospel to death. We don't know what they did on their deathbed. But again, we aren't their judge. We cannot judge a man's motives. But we sure can see the work of repentance. And we sure can see the work of regeneration. That's a life indeed. I will be a few minutes in Joel, just kind of an overview. And uh, Joel, wow. Peter used Joel chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Like I said before, Joel uses the phrase the day of the Lord five times in his letter. What is this day of the Lord? <clears throat> well, let me run, I have six points that I want to run down and then we'll, we'll look at these in a, little, in a little bit as we go through the, the minor prophets. Number one, the invasion of Israel from the north. What's going to happen in the end times? You know, Israel's going to be invaded from the north. 
They're going to come down. They're, they're going to come down. And he's going to be invaded, surrounded by enemies. We have a, 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 a the beast, the false prophet, are going to be raised up. We see that in, in, in especially in Revelation 13 and, and so forth. He's going to come up and in, in the middle of this, or in the beginning of the 70th week, he's going to make a peace a peace treaty with uh, with Israel. So Israel is going to have a false sense of security. And these people, these these forces from the north we see in Ezekiel 38, 39, and elsewhere are going to be heated up. And I believe that as they come down and invade, this false and this Antichrist will protect Israel and allow them to go on their sacrifices. And yet at the, at the middle of the seven-week or the seven-year tribulation period, we're going to, it's good, the tribulation period will end at the three and a half years, and then he will break his treaty, and then the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, will come in, and Israel will be persecuted like they've never been persecuted before. And all the kings of the earth are going to converge and come against, and they're going to set up the battle of Armageddon. And during the setting up of this Armageddon, the beast will reign. And during this time, we have the bold judgments because I believe that the seals will be broken and the seals, you have the riders going forth to conquer. You have the first rider, the white horse, going out to conquer. That's not Christ. That's the Antichrist. And so they're, they're going out across the land. Then you have the trumpet sounding. Then you have the last three and a half years as the beast is controlling the world and the world is in chaos. Then you have the bold judgments coming out. The Lord comes back. Then the third thing happens is, is not only repentance of Israel, but there is, if you, we won't go through it now, we don't have time, but if you want, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 9, you see a prophetic utterance of this repentance of Israel and what God does with it. It is amazing. Deuteronomy chapter 30, 1 through 9. Look it up. It's, it's wonderful. If you have a good Bible, uh, you can trace all the way through there. The fourth thing we see, we'll see, and we, all, we see it here in, in, in Joel chapter 2, verses 18, and, and a little bit on, the Lord's response to that. And by the way, if you, if you want to get a better outline than I can do, get a skull for original Schofield Bible. He outlines it well. These are the things that I've picked up through different things. Number five, we see the return of Jesus Christ as prophesied, Revelation 19. Then during the millennium, we see Jesus sitting on his throne. Wow. Israel's past history. Joel's prophecy will get into of putting together a lot of Israel's past history. You know, they were destroyed, almost completely destroyed by the, by the Assyrians. Judah was almost completely destroyed by the Babylonians. Then Judah was restored to their land. Then, then we have Christ coming into the world. We have the church age. You know, Israel rejected their Messiah. Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was destroyed. The Jews were scattered. But now on May 14, 1948, the Jews returned. The next thing on the prophetic calendar we're looking at is the rapture of the church, the catching away of the saints. As soon as that happens, we're going to see there might be a little bit of intervening time. We don't know. But then we're going to see this covenant of peace 
coming to Israel by this Antichrist we read about in Daniel chapter 9. Then we'll see the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, Revelation chapter 7, coming in, into the land. Then we see the seal judgments of Revelation chapter 6 starting to come out. Antichrist, the white great guy going out to conquer, then he shows his true colors in the middle of this tribulation period. He breaks the covenant with Israel. We see the, seven, the, the judgment trumpets of Revelation 8 through 9, chapter 9, coming out. Then we see the bold judgments at the end of the, or, you know, starting into that last three and a half years. That's when the Antichrist really rules. Remember, we looked at that in Daniel chapter 11. We also see that again, like I said, in Revelation 13, how the beast rises up out of the sea, the populace of humanity. It is amazing. And, and the reason why I'm setting the stage here is because Joel and the, some of the other prophets <clears throat> fit right into what's going on with the rest of the Word of God. I, I hope this is informative. You know, this is just so exciting to me. The last part of the of the the last three and a half years, right when the kings of the earth, Armageddon, and if you can imagine this, the only thing I keep thinking about is when Napoleon Bonaparte said when he came over the Golden Heights and he looked at that field of Megiddo and he said, if I have ever seen what, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably know this uh, phrase better than I do, but he made a statement, if there was ever a battle, a supreme area for a battle, this is it. This is it. Exciting stuff. And, and all the, I mean, the world is coming to the apex. Militarily. It's already been at the apex spiritually. And I believe that the Bible, they grow together. That's why in the world today, you have spirituality is always so kind of good. Yeah, I mean, how many times have you heard, I'm a spiritual person, you know? Well, there is a good spirit, and there's a spiritual understanding that we have with Christ, and there's the Antichrist deceiving spirits that are going out in the world. So you have the last three and a half years happening at just that right moment when things are at their peak. Jesus Christ comes back, and by the way, like we're fond saying here, over the years, you and I will be with him. Wow, isn't it great to know things beforehand? That's the prophets. And I know God's word is true, and I rejoice in it because God says in places like Isaiah 42 and 46 and elsewhere that I am going to tell you the things that are going to happen before they happen, so when they happen, you'll know that this is my word. But he also, like I said in prophecy, discloses his character. I'm going to be coming with him. All Israel, according to Paul, will be saved, Romans 11. A third of Israel, actually, the remnant will come through the fire. Christ will judge the Gentile nations. We see that in Matthew 25 and so forth. Oh, man, then we can read about the kingdom blessings. You know, kingdom is inaugurated for a thousand years. Christ reigns. We will be co-reigning with him. Then at the end of this thousand-year period, this one will be released that will go out over all the world and deceive those that can be deceived. There again, like in the minor prophets speaking, who saves his people? God saves his people. He has fire come down out of heaven and destroy 
those that are opposed to the saints of God. Then we have the great white throne judgment that is set up. What a sight that's going to be. A lot of people don't know these things. What a sight that is going to be. The, the small, <clears throat> the great, the powerful, the pauper, all those without Christ that have died in their sin will stand before the God of creation at his judgment. And anyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Then the next thing happens, then God creates new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is a prophetic overview of all that the prophets talk about that's going to happen. Wow. And you and I are safe, secure in Jesus Christ. This is God's word to us. I can't put it any better than that. I, it just is amazing how the word is. I want us to be excited about the word. You know, I really do. I, I was fortunate and, and I was had that drilled into my head, before, you know, at first, but why should not we be excited about the word of God? You know, so many people... Uh, make fun of, uh, you know, that, that guy who it was in a movie called Fuller's, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, remember? The monotone, Bueller, you know. Some people, you know, and, and I'm not getting down on people that, that have a certain way of speaking. But Jesus gets excited about his word. God is very excited about his word. His word would shout, and the universe slept into existence. Jesus' word shouted to Lazarus, and he came out of the grave. Jesus says in John 15 that he's going to shout, and his word's going to go into the graves, and those that are dead are going to come to life. There's a two-double meaning in, in, in John where Jesus talks about that. He's literally going to call, and the dead, when he comes back to, to take us out of this world, he is going to shout, and the dead in Christ, the bodies that have been in the grave, have nothing, then there's nothing else they can do but obey his command. He's the creator. There is nothing that the stars could do but obey his command when he, when he flung them out in the universe. That's our God. And that's, that is an area of life that is exciting. So what does that have to do with, with Joel? Everything. You know, the world's nations today, I got, I, <laughs> the world's nations today, all of them, are on a, they're on a direct course that will ultimately end in the Battle of Armageddon. That's an amazing statement, not mine. A gentleman by the name of David Levy. The nations today are on a direct course course that will ultimately end in the battle of Armageddon. In detail, the prophet Joel explains the destiny of these nations as they relate to Israel in the coming day of the Lord. That's fascinating. The coming day of the Lord. Well, wait a minute. 
Joel was one of the earlier writing prophets. Some say the 8th century BC. Some say later. I think some say a little bit earlier, but nonetheless. Wow. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethiel. That's my, my rendering of that name. I tried to look up that name, and I couldn't find much. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? This, this passage in this, in, in this first chapter here is going to be a prime example of what we've talked about of a pending judgment that happened at the time pointing to a more severe judgment that's yet to come. The locust, the eating of the locust, and so forth. If you want, real quick, just turn over to Obadiah, which is, you've got Joel, then you've got Amos, then you've got the little letter of Obadiah right after that. I just want to simply point out the fact that, as we've talked about, the day of the Lord is used by, or excuse me, by Joel, uh, in five different places. Uh, first chapter, verse 15. Second chapter, verse 1 and 11. Verse 31. And third chapter, verse 14. But here in the book of Obadiah, they say that chronologically, he was the first of the writing prophets. As far as they could say. He was a very early writing prophet. But we see the first uh, evidence, or the first description of the day of the Lord in chapter, in verse 15 right there. Only one chapter. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. For the day of the Lord upon all nations. So we have direct descriptions of the day of the Lord being upon all nations. A direct judgment where as we look at the first chapter of Joel, we're going to see a a Judgment, if you will, of locusts. Let's get into this. Give me a few minutes and I'll, I'll end. I know that time's getting short. This is fascinating. Again, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethiel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your father's? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Moses admonished that in Deuteronomy that fathers would, would tell their children. Look at verse 4. What the chewing locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the crawling locusts have eaten. What the crawling locusts left, the consuming locusts have eaten. Now, if you have a King James... You're going to have pillar worms and, and other, other descriptions. I was doing a little research on this, and, and uh, I found the exact same thing that, in the, that Levy was talking about. You know that there's more than 80 types of locusts currently known in the Middle East? <laughs> I didn't know that. Specifically, again, if you're looking at the King James Version, they're talking about four specific. They're, they're, it's kind of looking at, if you, if you will, of one Pacific insect, but nonetheless... Listen to this. In the Middle East, by the way, some of these severe locust attacks are called the army of God. 
<coughs> is that a coincidence? There is no coincidence in the Word of God. They devour everything in their path. Everything in their path. So this locusts are a perfect symbolic type of the invading nations upon Israel. I remember in Nevada once once every every year, sometimes they'd skip a couple of years, they'd have what they call the Mormon crickets. They'd always go through the same place. It was a little bit north of, of Reno going to towards uh, Susanville, right, when you get the border there. And sometimes these things would be a mile wide and they were so thick that when they would come down, the highway would be absolutely red by people running over them and their blood splattering. That's nothing compared to the locusts that are, that are, are dealing with here. More than 80 types. That's kind of amazing. I got, I got a little statistic here and we'll end with this. What the chewing locust, verse 4, left the swarming locusts of Eden. So when all these different types of insects have left, there's ones that can combine and take care of what they left. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth, verse 5. For nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. That's even in the midst of acquiring judgment here, God says something amazing in verse 6. Did you notice that? Against my land. He's being violated. He's being neglected. He's being shunned. What, what does Scripture say about a fool? Lives his life as if there were no God. The Lord is tender, but they're strong without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion. Verse, last part of verse 6, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. I uh, found uh, statistics. It's, it's amazing how much the uh, Israelites were involved in, in, well, let's just put it bluntly, alcoholism, wine, inflamed with wine, and so forth. And I just want to kind of end tonight um, with some statistics that, that I found in Listen to this. Levy writes, alcoholism is a downfall to any nation. And this is just something for your own information, just something light to end, to end tonight. I thought it was kind of interesting. In the United States, it is the number one drug problem and the number three health problem. The statistics on alcoholism from the Narconon, Southern California, are mind-boggling. Listen to this. Alcohol abuse in the United States costs society from 40 to 60 billion dollars annually due to loss of production, health, medical care, motor vehicle accidents, violent crimes, social programs, response to alcohol problems. Listen to this. Number two, currently nearly 14 million Americans, once in one in every 13 adults, abuse alcohol or are alcoholics. In addition, approximately 53% of men and women in the United States report that one or more of their close relatives has a drinking problem. Half of all, number three, half, half of all traffic fatalities and a third of all traffic injuries are related to alcohol abuse. 
Now he's simply stating this in relation to uh, this has been going on. This is not something that you know is a relative. Uh, and I I looked up the word how many times God refers to people's drunkards or or chastising his people. Whether in the Old and New Testament, you know, Paul admonishes us to be filled with the Spirit, not with wine. But yet the the uh, connotations in the Old Testament are staggering. Number four it is estimated that over three million teens between the ages of 14 and 17 in the United States today are problem drinkers. I know that from a fact. I had five teenagers, and I dealt with a lot of their, of their friends. That's true. An estimated 6.6 .6 million children under 18 live in households with at least one alcoholic parent. 62% of high school seniors report that they have been drunk. That's cause alone to keep your kids out of public school. Youths who began drinking before they turned 15 were twice as likely to develop an alcohol abuse problem and four times more likely to develop alcohol dependence compared with persons who did not begin drinking before 21. Almost done. Number five, about 43% of adults in the United States, 70, and this is 2010 by the way, 76 million people have had a parent, child, sibling, or spouse who is or was an alcoholic. Number six, alcohol contributes to 100,000 deaths annually, making it the third leading cause of preventable death in this country. And the last one, 41% of all traffic fatalities, again, are alcohol-related. He simply states in here, and I agree, sin, like alcohol, dulls the senses, blinds individuals under its control, desensitizes them to what is right and wrong, and completely dominates their life. So it's fitting in the book of Joel that God would equate that, that, that the, his people would wake up from their stupor of sin and start following him to take control. He's saying to Israel, wake up. Get out of that stupor of sin and your utter rebellion. Wow. You know, I, I can't I can't wait to, to get into these into these minor prophets. We got Amos, if you want to just thumb through these, know where these live or, or where they are. Amos, Obadiah, we got Jonah. Remember Jonah? We went through Jonah probably, what, three, two, three years ago? You know, um, Micah, who has great prophecies. Micah 5 2. Where does the Messiah come from? The Messiah comes out of Bethlehem. How do we know? That was prophesied. How did the religious leaders miss that? No prophet comes out of Galilee. Look it up yourself. You had somebody that was that was a student said, I did look it up. And Micah 5 2 said he comes out of Bethlehem. He's from everlasting. We also learn again out Micah, Micah 6 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Damn, wow. Nam. We're going to revert back when we get into Nam to Jonah. Remember, Jonah went to Nineveh. Repent, you know, preached repentance. 
Nineveh repented. Jonah got upset. I thought, or excuse me, 100, 150 years later, Nahum prophesied that God is going to destroy Nineveh, and he did. You know what? Nineveh was so big, they say it took three days to walk from one end to the other. We could go on and on. Next is Habakkuk. He cries out in the beginning, God, I can't understand. I got so much injustice here. Don't you see the violence? Zephaniah, wow. You want to have a strong understanding of the fierceness of the day of the Lord. You read that short book of Zephaniah. It's only three chapters. You go to Haggai. What does he require? These people were paneling their own houses. Why the Lord's house was going to waste. Sometimes the, the, the New Testament uh, prognosis of us is we pat our own lives. Why the spiritual <coughs> life and the vitality of Christ in us is going to waste. I, these are just phenomenal. And then you get to Zechariah. Wow. 14 chapters of absolute prophesying of what the day of the Lord will be like. What, what is Jesus going to do in the day of the Lord? Who's going to be with him? How is he going to do it? How is it going to end up? Where is he going to come back? When we get a hint of that, remember in Acts chapter 1, and the angel said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here? Gazing up into heaven, this same Jesus, not a different one, the same Jesus is going to come back in like manner, right to that spot. Where do we see that? Zechariah and in other places. But Zechariah is very pointed. Very, very pointed. Wow. And in that day his feet will stand on the what? Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem. Wow. <laughs> That's going to be, you know, whew. Just outrageous stuff. Malachi. Malachi, the last of the writing prophets before the so-called 400 silent years between the Old and the New Testament. Malachi talks about the, the, the John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord and so on and so forth. It's going to be amazing. Kim, would you pray, please? Thank you, Father, for the privilege of looking into your word and the freedom to do that in peace and tranquility. Mm -hmm. uh, we thank you that uh, the prophets help to build a complete structure or paint a complete picture of uh, your plan for the ages. We thank you for them and we thank you that we have the opportunity to uh, study through them now. We thank you for group here, thank you for our teachers, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen.